If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How did British agents bug German POWs during the Second World War? What qualities do you need to be a successful spy? And how are deepfakes changing the face of modern warfare? These are just some of the questions considered in Spies, Lies and Deception, a new Imperial War Museum's exhibition on the modern history of espionage. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, curator Amanda Mason reveals how the IWM went about telling the 100-year story of intrigue, deceit and real-life special agents. So Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Now, I'd like to start by asking you, why has the IWM decided to put on an exhibition dedicated to espionage and deception? And why now? So I think we are aware that espionage and deception is just one of those subjects that's always been of interest to people. I think it probably always will be. We have sort of touched on it in previous exhibitions in the past, but it felt like now was a good time to sort of take a fresh look at it and maybe bring the subject as, as up to date as we could. So one of the things we've tried to do in this exhibition is look at the subject right from the start of the museum's remit from 1914 and bringing the subject and the stories as far as we could up to the present day. Now, Are there any particular challenges 
to putting on an exhibition on spycraft. I mean, this is, after all, an area of human activity, of warfare, that has, by its very nature, sort of lived in the shadows. So, I mean, this is not something you can necessarily stroll into a library or into an archive and read all about. So, I mean, how did you get around that challenge? I mean, yeah, you're totally right. It's very challenging, particularly when you're trying to include some sort of contemporary story. What we try to do with the contemporary stories we've included, they're ones that are very much out there in the public domain. So we've got a story in the exhibition about a bomb plot that was uncovered in 2017. And that was an operation that involved MI5, it involved FBI and counterterrorism police. So obviously the FBI and the MI5 can't talk to us about that, but it was widely reported. The guy was brought to trial. There is news reports of it. So I think that's the type of story we could cover because it's already out there in the public domain. And we were fortunate that the counterterrorism police who were in the operation where they were the arresting officers and they were the ones that produced they actually made a fake bomb for this guy and we were able to borrow that for the exhibition which is a great exhibit so they were able to talk to us about their role in the operation so I think that's how we were able to cover that I think in terms of more contemporary espionage and obviously you know there is only so far that the intelligence services can talk about their work we're fortunate in the fact that Second World War operations that MI5 were involved in and later into the 50s, then a lot of those files have been released in the public domain. They're in the National Archives now where we could access those. So that was really helpful. And the other sort of contemporary story we've brought in is the Bellingcat investigations of the Salisbury poisoning. So obviously Bellingcat, you know, their work is all about talking about what they do, how they do it. Again, it's material that it's out in the open. It's open source intelligence gathering. So it was really interesting to talk to them about their work and to look at their investigation, the way they work. And again, that is a story that we can tell in the exhibition because that information is already out there. I think the other challenge about the secret world and anything about it is to what degree we still know the truth about certain things or certain events. So even things from the Second World War, you know, there are aspects of them that are still unknown, shrouded in mystery. I mean, somebody like Jasper Maskelin, who's sort of this sort of 1930s famous conjurer, who had a role in some elements of Second World War camouflage. He worked for a time in the camouflage team in the Desert War. Exactly what he did there Nobody's still quite certain. He obviously made certain claims about what he did. And over the years, these have been disputed or supported. So I think something like that is really interesting that we still don't actually know the full truth of what happened. And one of the other things we have in the exhibition is we featured this uh, guy, Dudley Clark, who was sort of known as one of the masterminds of military deception. And we've got a lovely portrait of him in the exhibition. And there's also a letter that uh, Field Marshal Wavell wrote about him and said, oh, I know all the great work you did for me in the desert war, but we can't talk about it. And so I think that was then alluding to the fact that he'd done all these things, but you know, lots of them were going to be secret and a lot of them probably are still unknown. So I think those are the challenges that looking at this subject brings. But I mean, it is such a fascinating subject. So it's, it's just like a joy to work on. It's, it's so interesting. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, the exhibition showcases, I think, more than 150 objects. Now, of these 150 objects, I wonder if you could introduce us to, say, three that really stood out for you when you were preparing the exhibition, both in terms of their effectiveness and also in terms of their ingenuity. I suppose one of the very unusual, quirky and I guess very ingenious items that's in the exhibition is the sniper head. So this is a First World War story where during the war in the, on the Western Front, there were lots of snipers were causing a huge amount of casualties and a, a solution was needed. So this guy, Hesketh Pritchard, came up with a solution where they created these paper mache model heads. They would put them above the parapet Obviously, they would then draw the sniper's fire. And from the bullet holes that they were able to look at in the heads, they could then determine the location of the enemy snipers and basically eradicate the problem. So I think that's a very ingenious solution to a, a specific problem. And I think the fact that some of those items have survived and were able to borrow one for the exhibition, I think is really fascinating. And I, I think it's one of the most unusual items that hopefully visitors will really enjoy seeing and be quite surprised by. Some of the other items that I think relate to one of my favourite stories in the exhibition are related to the secret listeners. So this is the eavesdropping operation that was set up during the Second World War, but basically listening operations where their private conversations were being bugged. So we've managed to borrow some of the recording equipment that was used to record those conversations. So I, I think that's quite interesting. It's, it's a really fascinating operation, one that perhaps isn't as well known as some of the other sort of more famous Second World War stories. And I think that technology at the time was probably so cutting edge that, you know, people wouldn't, wouldn't believe that they could do this sort of thing. I think Helen Fry, who's also the expert on this, has a story where, you know, even the prisoners were heard saying, well, you know, they wouldn't be able to listen to us because we'd be able to see if there was a microphone here. Well, obviously there was a microphone there, but they couldn't comprehend that the, they could hide something. So I think those are some of my favourite objects. And for the third one, I think I'd probably pick something relating to the Portland Spy Ring, which is one of my favourite spy stories in the exhibition. So I think those, we've got a mix of items on display there some from the museum's collection we have some sort of letters and items relating to two of the people at the heart of the story Peter and Helen Kroger so Peter Kroger was an antiquarian book dealer that was his sort of I suppose his cover job and we've got a little business card for his business but obviously as a book dealer he was able to send his books internationally but they were actually concealing microdocs with secret information I mean that's just such a perfect spy story isn't it and so the other thing we have relating to that particular story is a tin of talcum powder that had a special secret compartment in for sort of hiding sort of spy equipment and I think this is the quintessential spice about them. It's spying in suburbia. You know, there was a, this house that looked on the surface entirely normal. But when I, if I raided it and searched it, you know, it was concealing every room, was hiding some sort of piece of spy equipment or, uh, and, you know, even things like, even in the bathroom, something innocuous like talc had a secret to it. So I think that's one of the things we've tried to draw out in the exhibition. It's like nothing is quite what it seems. There is all these objects that look like they're perfectly normal. I mean, when you come into the introduction, we've tried to show a display of these things all look quite normal, but actually they've got something very secret about them, whether it's a sort of a, a pencil that's concealing a blade or a suitcase that's got a radio transmitter in it. 
there's always something going on below the surface, which I think is a really powerful theme for the exhibition in this subject. Absolutely. And you must have come across some pretty extraordinary people as well while you were preparing the exhibition. I mean, I wonder if there's one or two in particular that really struck a chord with you. I think it was really interesting to, obviously, when we talked about the challenges of being able to sort of talk to people who work in this field because it is so secret. I think one of the highlights for me was talking to John Kirby, who during the Gulf War was an army officer who was involved in creating an electronic deception, which enabled them to hide the location of British troops. I think just really interesting to meet him and to talk about somebody who'd been at the forefront of this creating a deception, being part of it, talking about the challenges of having to keep what they were doing a sort of a secret. And one of the things, one of the stories I really loved hearing from him was even recently, somebody who'd served with said to him, oh, well, there was, we did, there was no deception, was there? And he's like, well, yes, there was. But, you know, it was kept so secret that even now people he served with were sort of unaware of exactly the details of that. So I think that was really interesting. I mean, talking to people who are experts in this subject, historians like Helen Fry talk about the, the secret listeners operation. You know, that was really fascinating. And through her, you know, obviously I think most of the secret listeners themselves she was able to interview one of the last surviving secret listeners and you know, we were able to share some of that interview and see him talk about his experiences was really interesting. And to bring it really up to date, getting to meet Elliot Higgins and talking about Bellingcat and their work is really fascinating and we're really glad that he was able to sort of contribute and be part of the exhibition. Can you tell us a bit about the role that women have played in espionage over the past century? Because Spycraft has, I guess always had this image as being a kind of male-dominated world, but that's obviously not the case. So which female spies really interested you while you were working on the exhibition? Well, I suppose not so much spies, but in the First World War, we've used this story of women did a lot of work in postal censorship and in First World War in Britain, then a lot of the work in uncovering sort of the German spies or overseas espionage was done through postal censorship and people doing probably quite a boring job, very mundane job, going through loads and loads and loads of post and loads of mail. And so in the First of all, in one of the sections of the exhibition, we focused on this unit and one of these women in particular, Florence Reese, who worked in that operation. Um, so I think that, again, shows that women were perhaps, you know, working in a sort of a bigger role than perhaps was previously understood. In the Second World War, again, the listening operation that we talked about this with the secret listeners, we've referenced a woman called Catherine Townsend, who at a relatively young age worked into this operation because of her language skills, but very soon was rapidly promoted to the point where she was running this sort of M-room operation. So she was in charge of setting up the equipment, setting up the bugging. So I think her story is really interesting because yeah, she obviously had quite a very senior and important role. And I think through someone like Helen Fry and her work, she's really trying to you know bring some of these women to the forefront and, and show how they have had a, a really important role in espionage. I suppose the other area where women's role we sort of know a little bit more about is in the work of special operations executive because women agents were very important in that and were sent out to work as radio operators, as couriers, really dangerous work. And in the exhibition, we're featuring two women from SOE, Nora Khan and Vera Atkins, who one went off to serve in France and tragically lost her life. Vera Atkins was one of the sort of people from headquarters who, you know, I think very much felt responsible for the agents, the women and the men, and after the war worked in the war crimes investigation to try and find out what had happened and try and unpick the fates of those agents that were sort of sent out to France and to other countries, but largely in the exhibition were focusing on the ones in France, and then nothing was heard of them. And 
you know, her role in trying to uncover those stories. So I think those are, are just a few of the women that I think had an important role to play and that we featured in the exhibition. And during your work on the exhibition, did you find that there was any particular qualities, characteristics that linked successful spies? What qualities do you think you need to be successful in espionage? I think perhaps not so much espionage, but maybe looking at some of the Second World War sort of deception or military deception stories. I think some of those people were probably not, they were probably people who didn't sort of fit the mould of sort of standard military or standard spies, but they were people who thought in a different way. So people like Dudley Clark, you know, it's a quote about his, how his mind works in a different way to other people. Or you think about Ewan Montague and Charles Chumley, you know, those guys putting together Operation Mincemeat. I think the quality is to maybe think outside the box, to be creative. I mean, I think it's no surprise maybe in the Second World War that there were people like Jeffrey Barkers or Colonel Turner, people who worked in filmmaking. So they were very creative, that their skills were brought in to this role, into the war effort and to put their skills to a different, for a different purpose. So someone like Dudley Clark and Operation Bertram. So the creativity involved in thinking up all of those things that they were doing to sort of disguise tanks as jeeps or jeeps as tanks or to make a fake pipeline, all of those things are really interesting and, and quirky, but, you know, probably it would take a special type of mind and a special type of skill set to be able to think those things or to actually create them and make them happen. Now, as you say, the exhibition showcases espionage and deception stretching back to the beginning of the First World War. How, in your experience, has spycraft evolved over that time? What are the most salient ways in which espionage at, say, the beginning of the 21st century differs from its predecessor in, say, 1914? I think in the exhibition, it is possible to see how it has evolved. I mean, one of the stories we focused on is some of the German spies were sent out to Britain in the First World War. And it's clear from looking at those cases that espionage in those days was really in its infancy. I mean, I think it's clear that some of those German spies were really sent out with very little training. They didn't really know what they were doing and that they were mostly caught quite easily. So I think that really shows that that was at the beginning of sort of spycraft and espionage. Obviously, there has been huge changes. I think one of the things in recent years, that I think the case of sort of disguise, how do you become another person? And we've looked at a few cases where spies were uncovered because of they were using false identities. And in recent times, there's development of biometrics. So you can't just get a false passport anymore. So I think there are ways that spycraft has changed. And I think we, we did an interview with somebody from the FBI who'd been involved in the, sort of the Operation Ghost stories where they'd uncovered sort of a, a group of illegal spies in America in 2010. And she talks about how, yes, biometrics has changed things and it is more difficult to become another person now. But eventually people will find ways around that. And I think one of the things we've looked at in the exhibition, it always seems to have been a game of sort of cat and mouse. Who's winning the race? Is it the people who are creating uh, espionage and deception or is it the people on the other way around who are trying to find ways to counter it? So I think over time, I think that's what you can see happening is this sort of balance constantly shifting. And maybe we don't really know at the moment what's happening. We don't quite know who's winning that race. She was confident that, you know, there probably will be a way around biometrics. But then again, those intelligence agencies whose job it is to counter espionage will try and find ways to, to respond again. So it's always shifting. Now, in my head, I have this image of the Cold War as being the, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, is, is the zenith of espionage. When you had this grand battle played out by between the Eastern Bloc and the countries of NATO. I mean, did your research bear that out? Is that when governments were investing the most in espionage and deception? 
it certainly does seem to be at the high point of spying. And I think when we think about the classic spy stories that, or films that we think about, I think that's, isn't it, that's what we think about that period. And I think we were able to feature some of those key stories. So I think in Britain, like the Portland spy ring that we've referenced, you know, finding that group of spies centred around a suburban bungalow in Ryslip. I think that's, you know, obviously that's an interesting story. And then someone like Kim Philby, who is such a famous, infamous possible character. So to feature that story. But I think the way that we've tried to look at that is look at sort of, it's in the section where we explore sort of the repercussions. So, you know, his espionage, but what is the cost in terms of, yes, people who are, he betrayed, but also his friends and family. And I think just thinking about that from another perspective, and also the sort of the, the Klaus Fuchs and sort of the atomic secrets. He was giving away those, some of those scientific secrets at such a key time. And I suppose that's maybe why it was invested with such importance because, you know, it was such an important time in terms of developments, the race to develop the atomic bomb or to sort of improve your technology. All those things were key. So if you could get an advantage through espionage, then people were going to take that. But I think, again, with him, with Klaus Fuchs, we've tried to look at that story perhaps from the perspective of his friends. So looked at people that he was really close to and the shock that they felt and the repercussions for them when he was revealed to them uh, as somebody who they didn't think he was. And, you know, they he'd managed to keep keep the secret from him and how that must feel sure. as somebody who's realised they've been betrayed by their best friend. That's a, you know, that's a blow. How did curating this exhibition change your own personal perception of the world of espionage and deception? Really, I think for the more contemporary stories, it was really fascinating to find out more about the work of Bellingcat and to find out more about things like um, synthetic media and deepfakes. So I think that has been quite interesting and quite frightening. I think some of the things, some of the new technologies, but to talk to some of those experts, we were fortunate enough to talk to somebody who is an expert in synthetic media and its development and how that's been countered. That's been really fascinating. And I think, you know, it does make you more aware of when you see those things come up in the news to just understand them more. And I think also talking to particularly Elliot Higgins from Bellingcat, talking about critical thinking skills and how, you know, working on this subject or looking at some of the things we've just, you know, we should all have more awareness of thinking more deeply about information and not being necessarily more doubtful, but more sceptical. And I think just being more aware of everything that's out there and, and understanding some of these things that have happened, you know, some of these developments like deep fakes and just being more aware and understanding more about the world around us, really. That was Amanda Mason. Spies, Lies and Deception is running at IWM London until 14th of April 2024. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 